Welcome to Imaginarium, an alternate history of art, a podcast where we delve into the most obscure parts of art history. Hello dear listeners, I'm your host, Naja, and in this podcast we try to shed light on less studied parts of the history of art and visual culture. In today's episode... We'll talk about the movement of pre-Raphaelism and try to unearth the deep and hidden myth about this movement and learn a bit about some of the inspirations and influences that helped the artists of the genre create the art. But more importantly, we'll talk about the muses and the women that helped shape this movement and the way their careers and art still resonates within art history and how history often erases the creative output of a certain subset of people. I want to bring back to light, if even just a little, the less-known women that were at the helm of the pre-Raphaelite movement, and were thus forgotten by history, as usually happens. It is something quite peculiar to witness, as some of these women working artists were genuinely extremely successful and well-known in their times, enjoying both critical and financial prosperity, but were quickly forgotten in less than a generation or two. Sometimes they were the models and wives of these male artists, but they were so much more than simply a vision of inspiration to these male artists or a footnote in these men's lives. They were complex and intriguing people, and very much accomplished artists in their own rights. So my darlings, let's dig into the secret lives of the muses of the pre-Raphaelite movements. Before we go much further, I think it is important to give an overview of the genesis of pre-Raphaelism. So this movement is an artistic and literary movement that got its beginning in 1848 by a group of artists who named themselves the Brotherhood of the Pre-Raphaelites, which sounds very fancy and ostentatious. This group was comprised of artists such as Dante Gabriel Rossetti, William Holman Hunt, and John Everett Millais, who were all in their early 20s at the time, which by the way, it definitely goes to explain the name, and don't mistake me, I absolutely love it. I just think it's very cute. These names will actually end up being mainstays of the British circle of artists in the second half of the 19th century. They will all be very much known and talked about to this day, and be a significant part of 19th century British art history. I have mentioned some of these artists in previous episodes, such as the one on Ophelia in episode 3, where we talked about the version of Ophelia that was imagined and depicted by a few of these artists. You can go back to that episode if you want more details. So the movement of pre-Raphaelism was extremely influential and notable, and their significance can still be felt in the way we now think and reflect about art and design. 
These three early leading members of the Brotherhood were all visual artists, but they were followed by several more artists and even art critics who ended up being part of the Brotherhood. An important part of the group is its incredible multidisciplinary focus and the versatile way in which art and creativity was celebrated. The vision of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood was one where the concept and the visuals of art were brought back to the age before the Industrial Revolution and before the classical revival of the Renaissance, and so before the age of the great Italian artist Raphael. After all, it's all in the name, isn't it? So they were looking to create and manufacture a style of art and craftsmanship that resemble the sensibility that belongs to before the era of Raphael. The inspiration for their works of art was often taken from the late medieval and early Renaissance art of the 14th and 15th century, which are absolutely so lovely in my opinion. I think there is something to be said about how arbitrary and groundless the ways of delineating and dividing time can be. We want to order and classify things so badly. And like, why do I know it? Especially as a working archivist, I do love to classify and order things and make everything be clear and neat. However, when it comes to eras and history, all of it is so subjective and really intuitive. We want to be able to pretend that time works in very clear-cut ways, when it is not the case at all, and movements and artistic styles will overlap and disconnect from each other, and sometimes that period of transition between one to the other is the most fascinating of all. The Renaissance, for example, is often being used as a decisive moment of change and transition. However, this change is not as definitive as you think. The world at that time was still a continuity of the medieval age, and the perspective that those years were a complete age of darkness and that were only saved by the shining light of the Italian Renaissance, a time of progress and intellectualism, but... What is called the Renaissance designates mostly a very specific occurrence at a very specific part of the world, such as in Florence, Italy, in the late 15th century. And so, nothing is ever as simple as it seems. However, it is during that era, before the age of Raphael, that was the inspiration and the onset of the Brotherhood their art being thus in dialogue not only with their own contemporary society, but with their past and their vision of the past and the myths that constructed it. Their art was also a continuity of identity, personality and emotion, in a way that was not previously that popular. It is the fundamental understanding of what is art and the way people would relate to it that had entirely changed in the passage from the 18th century to the 19th century, where 
before art was simply seen as a profession and a craft, to the 19th century where, with the Romantics, for example, the perception of art started to evolve into the sentimental and subjective statement of an artist. And so, by the midpoint of the 19th century, that idea of art as a pure expression of emotion and inspiration had taken hold into the imagination, even though it was still quite revolutionary at the time. That attitude to art and culture was still fairly radical in the light of the official artistic institutions and their strict interpretation of art. The Brotherhood of Pre-Raphaelism was in opposition to this remnant of the neoclassical era, and that was continuing to be enforced by the British Royal Academy of Arts, an institution that instated an incredibly rigid idea of the way art should be made and understood. It was not about the creative instinct and artistic feelings were the heart and the inspiration of the artist as the driving force of the art. No, art was more akin to the way we would now consider craftsmanship. There is a place for creativity, yes, but it felt also eminently more practical and pragmatic as an approach. And to be honest, this is not something that necessarily bemoaned because I do think that all Craftspeople are artists and all artists are craftsmen. And it feels silly to me to create such an intransigent line between the two. The thing with those artistic institutions in the 18th century, though, is that there were a strong theory of what kind of art you could make, which subjects were acceptable and which were not. The world of fine arts was regulated and under the control of the academy, the salons and the pressure of the moral norms of the period. Being an artist was not seen as being a creative soul, but more so as having skill and talent and trying to create something that was pleasing and to the good taste of the audience. So while there were such movements as the Romantics and the Gothic Romance that were emerging toward the end of the 18th century, the art and aesthetic of the mainstream culture was still very much one that revered the neoclassical and preferred the very structured and hierarchical understandings of the arts. There was a certain way to create art that was correct and right, which left very little place to spontaneity and feelings. In the West, it was thus a remnant of the Enlightenment and of the Age of Reason. Everything was standardized and normalized. Even the paintings themselves were ranked in a very specific order called the hierarchy of genres, from history painting at the top of the pyramid, all the way to the still-life painters at the bottom. It is thus in that extremely regimented world of art, so that it made sense that the 19th century brought that entirely opposed reaction and way of thinking. After all, styles and trends are always a pendulum that keeps swinging faster and faster. The Brotherhood in itself did not last long. It was active and endured only for a short period of five years. However, those five years were rich in art, literature, and creativity. 
this troupe and as well as the artists who were in the periphery of that movement continued to influence heavily the world of art and design in the United Kingdom in the second half of the 19th century and beyond. There are a lot of movements that can still have the remnants of the influence of their vision of art and literature and it can still be seen in some ways more than 150 years later. From movements such as the arts and crafts to the way it influenced decorative arts and interior design in the late 19th century. This group of young artists had a more overarching influence than we might think at first. Indeed, even though the Brotherhood did not last long, there were several artists in the generation that followed that would continue to exist in the same artistic movement and stylistic expression as the original Brotherhood. This movement has such an important connection to literature and poetry, to the arts of the world. This was as much a literary movement as it was, one that dealt with visual arts and craftsmanship. It was a lifestyle and reflection of the way they wished to live. It came to be more than a simple style of art, but also a new understanding of artistic creativity and the meaning of design and artistry. There was an expansion in the way art was being understood, something that is extremely important in my opinion. Art should not be elitist nor as restrictive as it used to be. And the way we understand what is considered to be valuable art is tainted by the notions of social status and prestige. Unfortunately, the way things should be and how things are are often quite different. And so there is a certain yearning of freedom and a loosening of the movements in the ways that the Pre-Raphaelites choose to live if only in the break and distancing from the fashions of the rigid Victorian era that the pre-Raphaelite muses opt for in their poses and even in their daily lives. Their fashion was very much influenced by the medieval era, where corsets and shapewear were non-existent and the silhouette was not as shaped by undergarments that molded the body in a specific shape hence embracing a certain looseness and wildness, especially when contrasted to the very strong dress shape of the mid-19th century, with its corseted bodice and its gigantic crinoline skirt. Those muses were the models and women that would inspire the artists and painters of the Brotherhood and leave a lasting impact on the movement and on the art that would be created. Because after all... What is a muse? She is often more than a simple model. The muse will be a source of inspiration, but also shape the visual direction of the work of art for the artists. In this specific case, the muses ended up being full-fledged artists in their own rights and were the basis of the construction of the pre-Raphaelite ideal of beauty and womanhood. The muse, by her influence and effect on these artists, is thus also taking a significant part in building the core visuals and tenets on which the movement of the pre-Raphaelites will be built upon.
These women were chosen on the strength of their beauty and physical appeal. However, they were very much part of a new standard of beauty that was going against the accepted codes of fashion and had oftentimes more charm than mainstream appeal. However, there were women who were used as models and to represent such powerful women and figures of legends and myths such as Cleopatra and Lady Godiva, Circe and Ophelia. They were not considered to be the height of beauty during a time that privileged their rosy, healthy glow, dark hair and a soft demeanor as the standard of beauty during the Victorian era specifically in the United Kingdom. The cultural idea of what is considered to be beautiful is something that shifts and morphs and, most importantly, has to always be utterly unattainable the moment it becomes accessible. The goalposts have to be immediately moved. Also, when I talk about beauty standards, These are very much within the culture, which unfortunately will influence us all. No matter what, however, what each of us considers beautiful and attractive and pleasing is so incredibly personal. And I genuinely believe that beauty, whatever that untouchable quality is, is present in each and every one of us. These women, these muses, innovated on Victorian dress in a way that was considered as very scandalous for the era. After all, sometimes omitting a corset or foregoing the general silhouette of the era. Not following the trend seems like a benign thing to us today. After all, not every trend will please you. However, I think before our era of trendlessness, There was a general silhouette for each era that every strata of society ascribed to. It was simply the norm. If a high-waisted empire line was in fashion in England in the 1810s, then every single woman in the Regency era was going to be wearing that kind of dress, from the lowest classes to the highest classes. If you were not, you were distinguishing yourself and not in a good way, from the rest of the group. The same way that during the 1920s, when everyone had their hair bobbed and styled in a way that appeared like it was short, if you showed up with waistland hair and a cinched waist, you were setting yourself apart from society and it would have been oh so unfashionable. This is very specific to fashion, this notion of visually belonging to a group but also to distinguish yourself and assert your individuality. So now that this is basically why, the fact that these women were wearing dresses that emulated the medieval ones, mostly while posing and around the painters, and so more than the demure sensibility of the Victorian era, these women often represented those tragic figures of legend of dark sorceresses and queens that would bring terror and wreck mayhem into the heart of the viewer. The wildness of emotions and the mythical energy of medieval stories. And so the paintings of the Pre-Raphaelites were often a blend of history, myths and legends and of medieval romances. 
Of course, oftentimes women who were models and muses had an ineffable quality to them that wasn't quantifiable, that thing that people often call charm. Those women were as immensely talented and creative, and in their own ways, almost as influential and definitely as capable as their male counterparts. They were the inspiration in some ways for the movement, being the muses and the models for the male artists. Indeed, most of the beautiful images of the era and the female characters that you see in those well-known paintings of the Pre-Raphaelite movement represent these women, but also artists, poets and writers in their own right. From Jane Morris to Lizzie Siddall and Mary Spartley Stillman, these women were subversive in so many ways and I think that it is especially interesting to note how the work they did, even though revolutionary, often was not remembered nor studied on the same level as their male counterparts. The names of Gabrielle Vercetti and Waterhouse are all thrown around when we think about those artistic movements and that era, but they were heavily supported by these women as partners and artists, and whose names are rarely mentioned if not in relationship to these men. There is an archetype of womanhood that is put at the forefront of this movement, but also of the numerous paintings that were created, not only by the members of the Brotherhood, but also by their successors and the following generations of artists. It is a visual that is easily recognizable. The use of the earthy and jewel tones, the red hair, the pale skin, the extremely long hair which is let loose and flowing. It became an archetype that is still very compelling. It is, after all, one of the most recognizable symbols and motifs of the Pre-Raphaelite art. Elizabeth Siddall was a model and muse, and it would be easy to say that she was the model. And as most of these women were, she was not necessarily classically beautiful and fitting the beauty standards of the Victorian era, but nonetheless had something quite enchanting in the way that she appeared that appealed to that almost wild sensibility that the Brotherhood sought, something that felt dangerous and different, and was a reminder of the mystical wildness that they ascribed to the medieval era. It is that different visual aesthetic from the norm that attracted these painters to these women at first glance. She ended up marrying Dante Gabriel Vassetti, who was one of the premier founders of the Brotherhood and in whose art she was forever immortalized. Their marriage was short, lasting only two years until Elizabeth's death in 1862 at the extremely young age of 32 years old from an overdose of laudanum. She is still known to this day as the world of art's first supermodel and many books and articles refer to her as such. She was the model that gave her image to Millet's Ophelia, which we have talked about in a previous episode of this podcast, and to many of her husband's paintings as well. She had professional art training, albeit not as extensive as the male artist of the Brotherhood, 
since generally speaking, female artists did not have the same access to strolling, nor the right to practice with real life male nude models because of how scandalous that would be. She nonetheless had a career that created works of art that were in the same artistic and cultural tradition and continuity as the rest of the Pre-Raphaelites. And so, she was a painter and a fairly good one at that, considering the circumstances. She drew the scenes of romance and tragedy set in the medieval era, where the archetypal female character was still very reminiscent of the figure that she helped create herself. She was the original muse and model, the one that truly shaped and constructed the visual of the pre-Raphaelite woman. And the work she did for the Brotherhood was thus twofold, both constructing the genre as a muse, infusing the scenes with her own sensibilities, but also as an artist in her own rights. I think it is absolutely vital to mention that a lot of these women came from working class backgrounds and had to actually earn a living. They did not correspond to the idea of the refined woman of culture and had a life experience that the aristocrat woman did not have. And so they did not necessarily knew from a young age that leisure and ease of living. The poses these women chose to portrait in front of the easel guided the end result and was an example of that intrinsic symbiotic relationship between the model and the artist. However, these women were more than simple models. They were partners and collaborators and were just as much part of the pre brotherhood as their male counterparts were. Indeed, the moniker of simple model amused such an inactive and passive figure only existing to be looked at, is a bit of a misnomer in the case of these women who definitely brought their own distinctive flair to the art of modeling through their distinctive ways of being, of dressing themselves, and the way they carried themselves through life and art. There is a bit of the art of performance when acting roles of women larger than nature, to be modeled and represented as with costuming and styling their hair a certain way, to bring these figures of legend and fiction almost to life. For these women, identity was almost a work of art in itself, creating yourself up. The way they were curating their style, the wild hair, the strong colors that were reminiscent of nature, the floral patterns, all of these elements that were keeping with the movement of the pre-Raphaelites. And so it was as much a way of life as a continuation of the artistic movement. And those choices that they made were as much part of creating and fashioning the visual and artistic identity of pre-Raphaelism as the decisions that the official members of the Brotherhood were taking. The reception of the pre-Raphaelites' works of art was not initially a good one. The artistic style drawing strongly against the flow of the world of art and the mainstream ideas of what beautiful art was. And the models that were used were so out of the conventional mode of Victorian beauty that it was simply shocking to the public at first. 
a lot of these paintings represented women with vibrant red hair, clashing with the common understanding at the time. That red hair was something to be hidden away and be ashamed of, and actually changed that perception eventually so much, to the point where red and auburn hair became trendy and fashionable in Victorian England, an example of the way art can shape and influence cultures and societies. When I say these women were artists in their own rights, I do not simply mean as models to be painted and observed. I will not deny that there are some people who have the skills and talent to create worlds of inspiration through their own body and images. However, I do not think anyone will deny that it is not the same as taking an active role in the creation of art. Whether that art is the way one lives, the styling of fashion, or painting, design, and embroidery. The passive and inactive role of the muse is one that is offset by the active role of the painter, who is the one that looks, who puts the pencil to paper and creates. However, the fact still remains that being a model is the passive and inactive action of being looked at, versus the active and purposeful action that is posed by the artist, and so they are seen as an object of desire and beauty, instead of the creative young woman that they were. And after all, as John Berger puts in his seminal book, Ways of Seeing, quote, One might simplify this by saying, Men act and women appear. Men look at women, women watch themselves being looked at. This determines not only most relations between men and women, but also the relations of women to themselves. The surveyor of woman in herself is male, the surveyed female. Thus she turns herself into an object, and most particularly an object of vision, a sight. Unquote. Which, by the way, I think this book is required reading for anyone who loves art history and wants to understand it more. And so I'll, I'll just put this out there. I really love this book. The models subverted the understanding of a passive muse by being active participants in the world of art in all of their own manners. The modeling was simply something that was part of their lives, as professional models or by just sometimes sitting for a portrait. However, it does not encompass the whole of what they are and of their contribution to the art of the Pre-Raphaelites. They were often named as the unofficial Pre-Raphaelite sisterhood, a group that was the feminine counterpart to the Pre-Raphaelite brotherhood, almost acting as a foil to them. Jane Morris would go on to become the wife of William Morris and was a frequent model of Dante Gabriel Rossetti, with whom she might or might not have had an affair, or several. She was once again an atypical sort of beauty, with strong features and wild hair. She was the face of Rossetti's Proserpine in 1874, a work of art that is very recognizable. She was also from a poor, working-class background and had a very keen intelligence and once she had access to knowledge, 
she learned so much, even teaching herself several languages. She was also an artist, but her artistic practice was within the realm of textile arts, a discipline that is still too often dismissed, as well as the arts of general homemaking. Her embroidery and her textile arts went on to become patterns and designs for Morris and Co. The Pre-Raphaelites movement had a focus on arts but also on craft, and a perspective that makes them both artistically equal to one another, from ceramics, embroidery, weaving and patterns. The line between what is considered art, and I'm talking here about art with a capital A here, and what is considered craft or design, is simply a very thin one. And while the delineation of what was what was extremely clear in the 18th century and prior, where art was considered to be the oil paintings and the sculptures and the huge portraits and nothing else, Once again, this is a very Western-centric and exclusionary definition of art. Because on top of also ignoring the contributions of illustrators, watercolor artists, embroiderers, and etc., it ignores the works of art of non-Western artists whose practice would diverge from Western artistic tradition. It keeps the world of art to a select few, and continues to perpetuate the idea that any legitimate and correct art is created by the white Western elite. What I think is kind of funny is how much the more things change and the more they stay the same. I always feel like I hear about people complaining about change and the way modern life is being meaningless and how the modern world is impersonal and corrupting and I was watching a 1992 British sitcom a while ago where they said a similar line and I just thought to myself from roughly 30 years into the future, oh buddy, you haven't seen anything yet. And still this sentiment seems to come back no matter when you position yourself in history. I do have to think that it is probably stronger at times, but this sense of bitterness toward the way the modern world alienates us is something that is universal across time and space. The pre-Raphaelites were disillusioned with the modern world and wanted to look back to the past, and so did the Romantics, and so did the Neoclassical, and I think oftentimes it is by looking to the past that we are moving toward the future. After all, this fascination with the past tells us more about them than it does about the era they are looking back to. Because it is through the lens of the present that the past is being distorted through. And even though the pre-Raphaelites were trying to recreate a vague sense of the Middle Ages and the way they understood it, through the paintings, through the literature and the design, Those works of art reflect only an idealized and unspoiled interpretation of that era that had absolutely nothing to do with the reality. Mary Spartoli Stillman was from the next generation of artists that were incredibly influenced by the movement and was also a model. She posed for some pre-Raphaelite artists as well as some photographs 
dressed as historical figures of yore and she definitely looked the part. Slightly wild and long-haired with extremely expressive eyes. And while she was very beautiful, it is her art that left a mark. She was an incredibly talented artist whose paintings fall within the pre-Raphaelite artistic style. With beautiful shades of ochre and greens, they have an innate graveness and visual warmth to them that echoes the gravitas of the tragic medieval stories that inspired the movement. She kept the style of movement alive during the later years of the 19th century and is a proof of how, even though the movement of pre-Raphaelism truly was contained to the middle of the 19th century, art history and art styles often spill over and sometimes you just fall in love with a specific style and will keep creating art in that vein, well after the trend is over and done with. It is a visual style that still appeals. After all, Florence Welsh from Florence and the Machine uses it as a visual inspiration for her aesthetic and her album. There is something about a free-flowing dress and wild hair in the wind that still very much captures the imagination of people. I think because even now we need to sometimes go back to the past and listen to the echo of an era where things were magical and when emotions felt grand. On this, my darling listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of Imaginarium, an alternate history of art. I hope it was fun and we'll meet again next month for a new episode and a new deep dive into another lesser-known subject of art history. If you want to support this podcast, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com slash I want to take this opportunity to thank my patrons, Meili, Chun-Li Capuchin-Uyen, Sam Hurst, Natalie Slaggett, Jameson Hollybird, Jad, Eminem, and Carter J. Kane. Thank you all for the support you give this podcast. It means the absolute world to me. Otherwise, talk about it to anyone you think will like it. And as people say, like and subscribe and all of that good stuff. As always, all of the relevant images will be on our social platforms at imaginarium underscore pod on Instagram as well as on Twitter. This podcast was written, narrated and produced by yours truly, Najah. On this, I wish you all a very lovely day, evening or night, and I hope to see you again very, very soon. Mm-hmm.